Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. The scripture records Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. The scripture records, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayer of saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. It begins in verse 10, And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them heard I saying blessings, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever." As the apostle continues his view of heaven, he describes, as we've noted in the passing weeks, a book, a lamb, and finally in this passage, a song. The taking of the book by the lamb announces that the momentous time is about to occur. The psalmist highlights this in Psalm 2, verse 7 through 9, where he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, the psalmist said, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The contents of this song and its refrain should be a joy to the hearts of every Believer. Let's take a few moments this morning and look at this song in the midst of the throne. As we begin, let's back up just a little bit and look at the participants that are present around the throne. Now last week we dealt with the fact that there is this lamb and we have indication in verse number one of one that's sitting on the throne in whose right hand is this book that the lamb will take. But there are other participants and namely there are three that I would give you. The first of these participants is found in verse number eight. Uh, when the Lamb has taken the book, there are four beasts. Four beasts. Four beasts. Later in verse number 8, and if you follow down to the next paragraph or the next dash, you'll uh, fill in this blank, there are 24 elders. And the scripture has it, the four and 20 elders. And then finally, down in verse number 11, you have the third group of participants, and this is the angels. The angels. Let's move back up and consider verse 8, these four beasts. These are those cherubim, cherubim that are referenced over in chapter number 4. 
these Ezekiel refers to as a living creature. And we want to draw this distinction again because as you read down through the book of the Revelation, you have different entities referred to as a beast. Particularly in, verse number, in chapter number 13, you have a demonic beast. And here you have a beast. And, and, and to a mind that would just casually peruse this, you may have confusion. Uh, one might have confusion, just a casual uh, purveyance through these. But the beast here in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, and that we'll see again throughout scriptures, these are the Zoa. They are the living creatures. They are distinctly different from the beast in Revelation chapter 13 uh, that are a beast after the kind of a poisonous entity, a harmful, a dangerous type entity. These are living creatures. By the way, that uh, Greek word zoa is often used in reference to the sacrificial animals uh, that would be allowed to be offered in the biblical times. But these zoa are not redeemed. They have not been bought with a price. However, they are holy. They are undefiled. They previously being described, they are not participants in the singing of this new song, as we'll sing in just a moment. At the conclusion of this section, as we read, we find that they fall down, fall down before the throne, and they partake with all other of God's creation in a universal proclamation. And they conclude in verse number 14 with the Amen. Yet... I would note, as we'll see in just a moment, they are unable to sing as the elders will in verse number 9. Uh, I have in reference a verse that's well worth your consideration. That's in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. In speaking of the redemption of humanity, Peter uh, declares about the angels. He says, uh, which the angels, which things, the scripture says, the angels desire to look into. Uh, angelic beings like these four beasts and later uh, the angels that are mentioned in verse 11, uh, they've never been bought back. Uh, they are continually holy. Uh, they are dedicated unto the things of God. Hebrews chapter number 1 and 2 describes them as being higher than men. And they have not the nature by which you and I have. And they therefore have not the promises by which God has made to us. Equally, it was not... It was not them that God died on a cross to redeem. He did that to Adam's race. And it is salvation that comes to the redeemed of Adam's race. Remember, that's exactly what we refer to as our missions policy or missions uh, theory, if you will. We talk about the preaching of the gospel to the condemned of Adam's race wherever they may be. Do you realize that Adam's race is extensive? In fact, it's exclusive too. You know how many races there are? One. The book of Acts says we are all of one blood. I've mentioned this to you before, but if you take the opportunity to ever get a DNA test, genetic testing, kind of stuff like that, I want to know where you hail from, as it were. They're really testing only a small portion of your genetic DNA. The reason why is the difference between your DNA and someone that is polar opposite of you in pigmentation and height and blood type, etc., you're 99% the same. It's identical. Why one race? And so these Zoas and angels are not part of Adam's race. And therefore, God has never made a promise to redeem them. Now, the first mention of the redemption of humanity is in Genesis chapter 3. And who was it made to? The seed of a woman to Adam's race, if you will. Notice the second group in verse number 8. 
He mentions not only these four beasts, but he talks about the four and twenty elders that fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayer of saints. The twenty-four elders, the twenty-four elders, these are the representatives of the redeemed in Christ. Now, I should make a distinction. Uh, these are not Old Testament saints. Daniel seems to indicate, and so does Ezekiel chapter 37, that the resurrection of the Old Testament saints will come after the tribulation period. Uh, some disagreement in that regard, but that's the direction in which we teach. Uh, these are not tribulational era saints. In chapter number 7, we'll be introduced to 144,000 gospel preachers. Um, and in chapter 6, we're told of saints that, whose soul is under uh, the, the uh, altar. They're martyrs for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of that looked at in a chronological event. These individuals that are present, these representatives, these 24 elders, are representatives of you and I, those that have been redeemed. Uh, we might, if we wanted to put bookends on it, you could put the bookend since essentially the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave and to the time in which the saints, those which are dead in Christ, shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be called up. That's that era, that dispensation of the age of grace. Uh, these 24 elders, these are the chief participants in this section. It is primarily this group uh, that is indicative of the worshiping, singing, and proclaiming, Though, of course, as you get down towards the end, you find all creatures involved in uh, the proclamation of blessing, honor, glory, and power. A third group of the participants is the angels. And it's mentioned here in verse number 11. And John says, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. And then he says this, he says, And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. Uh, you know, as you look through the book of Revelation, there are several time-specific, numerical-specific entities. For instance, you've got four beasts. The Bible clearly gives you four. There's not five, there's four. You've got 24 elders. It gives you 24, not 25, not 23. <clears throat> you go to chapter 20 of Revelation, you'll give the dimensions of the New Jerusalem. And it's very specific in its, in its cubical shape, its breadth, its length. It's height. You're told about how many stones are on this gate and how many are in what order they're in. You're told about seven seal judgments and seven vile judgments and seven trumpet judgments. You're told about there being the space of 42 months or 1,260 days. You're told there being 144,000 evangelists uh, that will preach the gospel of Christ and there would be, um, as it were, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. That's chapter number 7. But of all the numerical quantities that exist, we're told about two witnesses. I left that one out. Not three, but two. This is yet the only unspecific number that you'll really find in all of the book of Revelation. In fact, if you'll notice it again, he talks about there being 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. It is an indefinite number. In fact... If you look directly at this passage, that, that number that's listed as 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands, the word for 10,000 should be of interest to you. And if you were to take that word 10,000, you would do a word study on it. You were to search it, you'd come into, for instance, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 12, and it's used as the word multitude. 
multitude. A Greek word there, which is one you'd be familiar with, is miros. It's from which we get the English connotation myriad, multitude, if you will. This word is synonymous with the word multitude. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. And Jude, we're right here in Revelation. Let's flip over to Jude. Jude chapter 1 and verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with... And note the S on the ends, a thousand. It's, he's not talking about 10,000 plus one. It's an innumerable host. It's just ten thousands. What does that mean? How many ten thousands? There's no stipulation. He's not trying to be precise. He's talking about an innumerable multitude, a myriad, multitude of individuals' presence. Now, as we look at this multitude, I went the wrong way here, but in Revelation chapter 5, I should note this as well. Now, these angels appear. You have the 24 entities or the 24 elders that represent the, 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 the New Testament age, age of grace. We have four beasts, and they're very precise numbers. But then you come down, and uh, he's saying in verse number 11 that when he beholds these, John says, I see four beasts, and I see the four and twenty elders, and I see ten thousands of ten thousands of ten thousands of them. The of them is a very important phrase. It's indicative that when John looks around the throne, he beholds he that sits on the throne. He beholds the book. He beholds the lamb, uh, root of David, uh, uh, lion of the tribe of Judah, the four beasts he's familiar with, the 24, and then all of a sudden there's 10,000 times 10,000 and a thousands of thousands of angels. What he's referencing here is that these angelic beings that, that uh, minister around the throne of God make up the innumerable host. And that's in keeping, as you find with the Scriptures. For instance, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53, as the Lord's there in the Mount of Olives, and He's dialoguing with those that are present, He said, Know you not that uh, my Father would give me, what? Twelve legions of angels. And they were familiar. These were soldiers present. They all knew what a legion was. A Roman legion was approximately 4,500 uh, military men. It was 4,200 infantry and 300 mounted cavalry uh, that would be present. And they were men that were trained, every one of them, uh, many of them not volunteers, almost all of them exclusively fully vetted men of war. Uh, to have a Roman legion, to have 4,500 men. And uh, of course, if you study in that portion of history, it could be extended even beyond the 45 to 10,000. Oftentimes, when a Roman legion went forth, uh, the Roman government had made it such that the area in which the legions were going to defend or to protect, etc., had to be matched by people from that area. And so you kind of had your 4,500 to 5,000 militiamen that would join these hardened Roman legions. But if you just take the broad essence of a Roman legion, 4,500 in each distinction, this was the largest Roman military unit. And 12 times 400, uh, that's about 54,000 that would be present. 54,000, that's a host of individuals. Uh, in Hebrews chapter number 12, look there for a moment. Hebrews chapter number 12, and uh, draw your attention to verse number 22. And you do need to go to chapter 12, I turned over to chapter 11. These angels he's referring to. Uh, how many angels are there? I don't know. 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. Uh, 
Listen to what the writer of Hebrews pens in chapter 12 and verse 22. But ye are coming to the Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to a what? Innumerable company of angels. The reference I would give you then is these angels that John sees. It's an innumerable host, a multitude, a myrios, 10,000 times 10,000. Now, draw your attention back to verse number 8, and let's talk a little bit, in addition to the participants, of the paraphernalia that is present. Notice, if you will, in verse 8, he's taken the book, the four beasts, the four and twenty elders fell down, and having every one of them harps and golden vials of odors, which are the prayer of saints. This phrase is very important. Which are the prayer of saints. What does that mean? Now, Catholics would tell you, those in the papal theology will tell you that this is the idea of people praying to saints. But who is it that has these vials? And who is that that has these harps? Now, in our imagery, right, we often have the idea of angels with harps and diapers floating around in eternity, plucking their strings. This passage is quite interesting. It just simply says, in each one of them, having every one of them. Who is the them? Now, in a brief context, we look back and we say, well, that's the elders and the beast. But if you look in context grammatically, in verse number 9, whoever the them is, is also doing something else. They're singing. Notice what they sing. They sing a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and has redeemed who? Us. It's not the four beasts that have the harps. It's not the four beasts that have the vials. It's the 24 elders that have these. For only these that are representative of the New Testament believers can truly say, Thou hast redeemed us. If you wanted to get into the Greek of the issue, it would be even, even quicker to find. Um, the, the word beast is in the feminine. The word elder is in the masculine. And when it references the pronoun them, it is in the masculine, not the feminine. If he meant both of them grammatically, it would have been in the neutral state. It's a reference to the elders. These elders, each one of them have two specific things, a harp and a vial. This idea of a vial, it is a broad, brimmed, but shallow cup. It's a kind of a, almost like a chalice, if you will. It's a, a wide at the top and narrows quickly to the bottom. It's not terribly deep, but it's broad. It's the idea of these vials that he has. Note the harp for a moment. The harp is one of the two instruments that is specifically mentioned as being in heaven. Now let me reiterate, I am not saying that the harp is one of two that are only in heaven. I'm just saying in the book of Revelation, you find this harp and later you find trumpets. And those are the two that we specifically will note will be in heaven. Harps throughout the scripture are often associated with worship, particularly in the New Testament. And for reference of passages, you could look at Psalm 33 and verse 2, Psalm 71, and even Psalm 92 in the first few verses therein. Harps. Another thing that they have in their hand are the golden vials, the golden vials. And we're told that these are the prayer of saints. Uh, the question would be, and there's a couple of them here, if these 24 elders are indicative of the New Testament believers, 
who are these saints by which they have prayers of? You can't divide the New Testament believers. At this point, particularly in chapter 5, you don't have some in heaven and some in earth. The 24 elders represent uh, the New Testament age of believer, and that is what makes most cohesive uh, uh, theory there in that presence. Who are these prayers that they have? It's not the idea that they have the prayers that they have brought with them. They've been raptured out. There's no more New Testament believers that are present. And yet we haven't really found anything about tribulational saints. But there is indication that there will be. And I, I likely submit to you that these prayers are the prayers of the tribulational saints. They're not the prayer of the Old Testament saints. They're not the prayers as it would be of the New Testament saints. And so the only group left would be the tribulational saints. <clears throat> it should be interesting to note that tribulational saints later are calling for revenge. Look over in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. It says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? As he's taken, John does, in just this viewpoint of heaven, in chapter 6, begin to look upon all that is now falling upon earth, you've got great martyrs that are present. In fact, later in the passages uh, of the book of Revelation, you'll, you'll find out that they're being beheaded, those that were beheaded. Uh, what's going on in earth? Well, true believers are not meeting to worship in spirit and truth quite the same way we are. There is a vast persecution that is occurring. And there's a multitude of individuals that are dying for their faith in Christ Jesus. That's these prayers. These are the saints uh, that it mentions. And it should be noted, these, let me read this next statement here, these horrifically persecuted believers are crying unto God for aid. What are their prayers? Now, again, papal theology would say that you're praying to the saints. What good, what good does that do? If it is indeed the prayers of the saints, as we might look in the reference of how you and I pray. I, I researched this quite dramatically, and I tell you, I, I came up with one glimmer of a fault that I found, I should say. Um, it's not the prayers in the sense of them asking the saints to pray for them. It's not the prayer of the saints and petitioning those 24 elders to do something for them. I rather fully believe that it really is the Word of God. Particularly, it is the promises of God. Now you take, for instance, we have mentioned before that many of these Revelation, Tribulational era saints will likely be Jewish. You know that there has to at least be 144,000 of them because they're mentioned in the next chapter. There's a host of them and they're the ones going forth to preach. And the primary crux of the book of Revelation has to do with the Jewish people. And it is three parts of judgment that exist. The divine judgment, demonic judgment, and then the failed and flawed nature of man and acting in its most abysmal of means. So what would a saint of God of a Jewish persuasion naturally gravitate to? It would be the psalm book of the Bible that they have been taught since their youth. If you look in the psalms of Scripture, I would note that there are many of them that are pleading 
and crying unto God for deliverance. I think that is these songs, these prayers, these psalms that the believer has. Their prayers are the promises of the Word of God. They are pleading what God has said that He would do. They are pleading and praying the very Word of God. That's right. One day, the psalms that you and I read and go to comfort to will be of comfort to saints in a future age in a complete different way. You think of the times that you and I have said, why is my soul cast down? And we might reflect on the 42nd and the 43rd Psalm. And why would we read that? Because we've been sorely persecuted? No. We might would read that and pray that and incorporate that in part of our prayers because we feel that life is difficult. We would plead the need of the Almighty God. Very few people world over, have ever prayed the Psalms in need because they were facing the executioner. But in this day, in the tribulational age, it will be a powerful thing. It will be something that will be gripping the hearts for to be a child of God in the tribulational era for those that will come to the knowledge of Christ in that time frame will almost certainly mean certain death. What will be the last words on these faithful martyrs As they approach the steps of death, they will plead the promises of Scripture as God has commanded us to do. That is why I think that these prayers are really seen in like of the Psalms of David. Surely the sorrow seen in the persecution of David will take a center role in the hearts of God's saints. Notice thirdly, and we will not get through all of this, but notice thirdly, if you will, the Psalm. The Psalm. The elders now sing a, notice that in verse number 9, they sing a what? Won't just be one of them. You know, we talk about hymnals that exist. and Our hymnal has 800 and so many different choruses and hymns. But one day when we get to heaven, there will be many new songs that will be sung. They do not sing the new song, they sing a new song. As its center... This song enshrines the marvelous victory of Christ on the cross. His victory, he hath prevailed, the scripture mentions. He hath prevailed in the previous words. This victory over sin, death, and the grave has made him worthy. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 speaks of the fact that we are redeemed from the curse of the law... For the law say it's surely cursed is every man that hangeth on the tree. Notice a little bit about this song. They talk about the fact that he was slain. Thou wast slain. We think of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God commended his love toward us. And the while that we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was slain. Christ died for the ungodly. Not only that Christ was slain, thou slain, but thou hast redeemed us. Thou hast redeemed us. His death purchased our liberty for those enslaved in sin. Titus talks about not by works of righteousness, but then he begins to talking about that he has redeemed us by the washing of regeneration, by the purchase of his own blood. This is that redemption that has occurred. Surely this redemption may be applied to anyone who by faith receives the blessed gift. If you have your place in Revelation, hold it just a moment. Turn over to Galatians. Galatians. If you have a marker where we were 
just a moment ago in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the very next epistle, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. This is Galatians chapter 3. This is quite powerful. You want to know what you're going to be in heaven. Uh, listen to this. It says, verse 13, Galatians 3, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for, uh, for, uh, being made a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That's a passage we mentioned earlier. I want to move down to the end of the chapter. Notice is this. For ye are all, verse 26, children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor, Gen- uh, nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. Neither, uh, there is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. You find here redemptions for anyone who by faith receives this blessed gift. Paul states in Colossians chapter 1 that he preached the gospel to every creature. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, it says of our Savior that he is the Savior of all men, the Savior of all the world, especially those that believe. Note the distinction here of these people. Thou hast redeemed us by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. You think of kindred out of every tribe, out of every tribe. You think of tongue out of every language. Isn't it marvelous to think? Languages divide us now. In fact, in many ways, that can be a good thing. In some sense, it could be. But languages are dividing things. Even in our technology today, we still have not been able to develop a technology that will allow the immediate uh, ability to communicate globally in that sense. It's not present yet. But oh, how there's grand advancement. That is a necessary thing. Here in heaven, though, they're all singing, and it would say that they're perhaps singing in the same language. All people. All people. That's political. You think of the different great kingdoms and countries that existed. I I mean, there's going to be... I got a prayer letter from one of our missionaries over in China, and he's telling about the various things that will there unfold for him in the coming... Uh, months ahead. Your friend, when, when we get to heaven, there's going to be Chinese saints. Well, not really. Not really, right? Be Cambodian believers. Not really. They'll just be believers. Formerly known as Americans, Germans, Canadians, Cambodians. One people. One people. And then he mentions nation the ethnic background. It's broad. It's a very broad distinction to there be given. And note in part of this psalm that they'll sing not only the kindred, nation, people, and tongue, but notice as he continues in verse 10, and thou hast made us the saints of God unto our gods, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We shall reign. This is future tense. They shall reign. The saint of God at this present time is not reigning. What throne do you sit on? What throne do you proclaim from? No, I'm not reigning yet. But there'll be a day that we will. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that those that suffer with him will reign with him. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, I see that I'm a little ahead of the notes here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, he commands part of being kings and priests. Thou hast made us kings and priests. Each saint of God will be a king and priest. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about one day that we'll judge angels. Hebrews, we're a little lower than angels. But one day we'll be supreme to them. We're in the presence of our Savior. And we will reign. This is a future tense. These believers shall reign. And by the way, I should mention to you that of all the versions of the Bible, the only one that has a shall is your authorized. All the rest of them talks about and we reign, which is doctrinally and practically and experientially incorrect. You're not reigning over anything right now. One day you will. The saints of God are not at this time reigning. But one day, 2 Timothy chapter 2, they are proclaimed to reign with him. So is she that we shall reign with him. This is not at this current time, but in the future. Notice a fourth thing, if you will, in addition to the participants, the paraphernalia and the Psalms. We have the proclamation. The proclamation. Notice, if you will, in the scriptures, saying, he says in verse 12, with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, and honor, and glory. This is a sevenfold adoration here. And every creature which is in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are there in them, Heard I saying, Blessings and honor and glory and power be unto the Lamb that sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb forever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever. So this is the third time, the third time in these two chapters in which the Lord is declared as worthy. And you'll keep in mind this is worthy to open this book of judgment that will soon be made known. This word worthy, as you'll remember from our previous study, uh, deals with the declaration given to a victorious king. Uh, Adoration and praise, axios is our word there. And so the third time that we'll find it in these two chapters. However, there are many additional proclamations that are made declaring his internal attributes. These are the first four. And the last three, his external appraises. Notice in verse number 12, as he declares these, he talks about power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. This word power, uh, we find this throughout the New Testament. Dunamis is the word. It has the idea worthy of, uh, has the idea of power in the context, has the idea of worthy because of his omnipotence. In Romans chapter 1, speaking about the heavens and all that is made known of the glorious creation of the great God uh, and those that hold this truth unrighteousness, uh, in unrighteousness, it talks about His eternal power of the Godhead being made known to humanity. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Paul, through inspiration, attributes the fact that He is far above any principality or power. Uh, In chapter 3 of the same epistle, in verse 20, uh, there is that uh, idea of exceedingly abundant in his provision of power to the saints of God. If there was no other reason uh, by which this new song should captivate the hearts of saints in the future, as so should be our hearts as well, it is that God is worthy of all, that Jesus Christ is worthy of all because of his power. You'll note a second word there, he says, riches. Riches. He is worthy because of the spiritual and material wealth of his provision. Note here, if you will, 
Now you can hold your place here in Revelation. You look over in Psalm 50, uh, just a, a series of verse to reflect upon. Notice if you will in verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountain and the wild beast of the field are mine. And it's interesting for you hunters. We have to take out hunter safety class and we're uh, told how these are the natural resources of the state. Uh, that's not God's opinion on it. He says they're mine. Verse 12, he said, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. All belongs to him. God is worthy because of uh, the uh, material and spiritual wealth that he provides. He mentions another eternal or internal, I should say, attributes. His wisdom. His wisdom. He is worthy because of his omniscience. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, he speaks of the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's heralded that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. That God through his, his knowledge and wisdom confounds the knowledge of the wise of this world. He's worthy because of his attribute of wisdom. Yet he comes to a fourth one, this fourth internal one, strength. You'll find there, uh, strength, uh, strength. Uh, he is worthy because of his mighty ability. In Ephesians chapter 6, to be strong in the power of God and in his might. And Peter mentions again about the strength of the almighty God. There is great might, that is ability, to be denoted separately from the, uh, the, the force of power or the realm of power is the ability of might that he has. He alone has power, riches, wisdom, and strength. Yet as we said a moment ago, there now will be the external appraisals of man. And three of them mentioned that these saints in this new song hone into honor, glory, and blessing. Honor, when you think of honor, you think of time. You think of money paid. You think of value. It's found throughout the scriptures. Uh, particularly, you think about uh, honoring the king, uh, giving honor to those that labor, honoring the wife as into the weaker vessel. He says, honor the pastors, worthy of uh, double honor this man that labors well in, in uh, doctrine and in the truths of the word of God. But of all great honor, none belongs greater than that of God. He is worthy. Because of his power, riches, wisdom, and strength, he is worthy of my highest price. There's your blank. Price. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you are bought with a price. Be not the servant of man. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse uh, 23. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we have these words penned for us. The scripture records, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light that no man can approach into. Very similar, isn't it? Uh, to Revelation chapter 5, uh, when, when uh, John is looking to see, it says he weeps because no man was worthy to open the book or read, neither to look thereupon. In 1 Timothy, not speaking of a book, but rather speaking of the Lord, uh, no man can approach unto him, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So as we consider God's power, riches, wisdom, and strength in this song, it moves beyond and begins to talk about these external appraisals. Man, the saints of God, he, that is Jesus Christ, is worthy of all their honor. He uses another word in this particular passage, glory. Glory, the seventh adoration. Uh, he is worthy of my highest praise. 
is worthy of my highest praise. Doxia, the idea of glory. Um, he, he speaks in Hebrews chapter 7 that he is, or Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 7, that he is crowned with glory. He is crowned with glory. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, uh, we find this. Uh, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is worthy. The Lamb, that Lion of the tribe of Judah, is worthy of all of our praise of glory. And then finally, the seventh portion of this adoration, he uses the word blessing. This is an interesting one. This word, uh, this, this Greek word here, it's the word by which we get the idea of eulogy. You might have been to a funeral. And it's important, the funeral, uh, they had a friend or a family member, but a close person to them that gave the eulogy of the departed one. Well, the word eulogy has the idea of bestowing blessings. And usually those eulogies are of the finest speech. And I would submit to you the seventh part of this wonderful uh, new song was the fact of these blessings that the 24 elders sing unto him. And that blessings is, it denotes that he is worthy of our finest speech. Blessed, we are told, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. All of my speech, my praise, my price are worthy. They are external appraisals of my particular value that is placed on the indelible one of Jesus Christ who has given all power, riches, wisdom, and strength. In fact, as you look at this sevenfold adoration, this new song, it reminds you of First Chronicles chapter 29. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. Thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee. Thou reignest over all, and in thy hand is power and might. And in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. It almost sounds as though David and John studied perhaps from the same notes. Rather, it is the same spirit moving upon them to acclaim the great cry of worthy is the Lamb. This grand proclamation. As we move down to the latter part of verse 13, you'll see a replication. The scripture says in verse 13, every creature is in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and as such are in the sea, and all them in them, all that are in them, heard I saying, and you'll see the repetition of these adorations, blessing, honor, glory, power, be to him that sitteth on the throne unto the Lamb forever and ever. There's just one difference. And that is that last power is a different form of power. And there are several words in the scriptures that are used for that, but we often think of uh, dynamos or dunamos uh, as we reflected on a moment ago. Or we think of strength. Ixis is the idea of this. But here this power is kratos. Kratos. And it has the idea of a power that a king has. It is dominion. That is, he is to have all authority. Philippians chapter 4 speaks of this. That at, the, at that moment, the Lord having given this glory to him, he that in Philippians chapter 2 rather had humbled himself and become obedient even to the death of the cross, but now hath God exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's at this moment this transfer is from taking that right hand, this seven-sealed scroll, this book written inside and on the outside, these seals about to be opened where the manifestation of God will be brought to full fruition and where finally the conclusion of all of the evils of the Gentiles, the evil of Satan, and of course the idolatry of the people of Israel will be brought to conclusion. That process begins, we should say. He has the authority. And thereby every child of God should claim and proclaim as the psalmist did in the 150th Psalm, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. What a wonderful day it will be to be in the presence of the throne of God and to hear this new song that is sung, surrounded by the infinite glory of God and the myriad host of angels and the four beasts and the 24 elders cry in unison as every child of God ought at this time even so to do the song in the midst of the throne. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.